Third Nephi chapter 12. Now we come to the beginning of the Savior's famous Sermon on the Mount, which extends through chapter 14 of Third Nephi. Whenever I've taken tours of the Holy Land, the tour groups have usually asked me to take everybody on to the Mount of Beatitudes overlooking the Sea of Galilee and present the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. This talk has been recorded and I have been asked to include it in the Book of Mormon commentary. However, nothing can supplant the original text just as Jesus gave it to the Nephites. We will therefore first hear the tape and then ask Wendell Noble to present the original text as only he can do it. Now imagine yourself on the brow of the Mount of Beatitudes looking out over the Sea of Galilee. Whenever we talk about the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus apparently gave it twice. Once he came up onto the Mount here where he had his immediate disciples and his quorum of the Twelve with him. In fact, he gave that sermon shortly after he ordained the Twelve and set them apart to their high calling as special witnesses. Then Luke says uh, in the seventh, uh, sixth chapter, uh, that he later gave much of the Sermon on the Mount to the general populace of the people down on the plains. Now, we have an advantage when Jesus appeared among the Nephites as the resurrected Christ at the latter part of the year he was resurrected. He didn't appear among the Nephites immediately after his resurrection. It said toward the latter, the very latter part of the year. He appeared at Bountiful where there was a temple and he appeared under spectacular circumstances and he appeared among them in a big general conference that had been called by Nephi the third and he called up the twelve that were going to be his special disciples and then after all of them had come up and witnessed the wounds in his hands and his feet about 2500 people did it it would probably take about three hours just to do that. He had them listen to this beautiful Sermon on the Mount which begins in 3 Nephi chapter 12. Now he has the 12 with him and he has all the disciples and congregation with him. Only part of the Sermon on the Mount are for the 12. Then the rest is for the people in general. So we have a very special edition of the Sermon on the Mount in 3 Nephi, which helps us understand to whom each part is addressed. Now, when I was a very young person, I used to become terribly bothered by the so-called Beatitudes. <laughs> they turned me off. Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, you mean it's just great to be poor. I was raised in a lot of poverty. I, uh, we lived in tents for two years when we first had to leave Canada and go to California, and we didn't mind. It was kind of like a perpetual vacation, but it almost sounds as though, you know, to be poor, that's the ultimate. Didn't seem like that made much sense. And um, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There are lots of people who mourn who are never comforted. There's just something missing there. And in the edition that we have in 3rd Nephi, we have the whole structure and we can understand it better. 
Now, in order to appreciate what Jesus told these people and what he meant by blessed are the poor and blessed are they that mourn, let me just lay this foundation. If, as they did in the early history of the church, you had an opportunity to ask the prophet for a revelation just for you, what do you think you would get? All the early saints wanted a personal revelation, but to their amazement, they all began to get practically the same revelation. And we would too. And it would probably be pretty much like the Sermon on the Mount, because that's for all of us. So if you really want to know what God wants you and me to do in our lifetime, read the Sermon on the Mount carefully, particularly in the fifth gospel, which is third Nephi, and you'll know what God's will is concerning you. And here's what he says. Jesus said, it's very important for you to go out and preach the first four principles. Let them be absolutely confident and sure of God's existence and of the divinity of his son, Jesus Christ. Then let them repent and reform and abandon those terrible offenses they've been committing against God and man. And then I want them to enter into the waters of baptism, to be immersed and to make covenant with me that they will endure to the end and obey my commandments. Then I want hands laid upon their heads for the gift of the Holy Ghost that will guide them into additional truth throughout their lives and ultimately lead them to all truth. Having said that, he said, and blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me. Now that's what was bothering me. All of the poor are not blessed. All of those who are discouraged and downhearted are not blessed. Only those who are willing to come unto the Savior and say, all right, I've, I reveled and rioted in all my sins and my evil ways. I am miserable. I loathe myself. And now I desire to seek from thee guidance in the way that I should go. And the Lord says, those who come unto me, though they be poor in spirit, meaning very discouraged, theirs yet can be the kingdom of heaven. Now here's what that message is. Most of you probably lived very normal lives. You probably never indulged yourself like Alma the Elder. Alma the Elder was a priest of King Noah. He did everything vicious and ugly and terrible and destructive that a human being can do who is rich and has a king who will support him in his evil ways. Then he listened to the prophet Abinadi and he said, I was wrong. What a horrible thing I have done to my God and to myself and to my children who will come after me. And in the deepest repentance, God accepted him completely and made him the next president of the church. Kind of fascinating. Then, amazing, he had a son, his youngest son apparently, who did the very same thing Alma the elder did. And while his father was president of the church, that boy went out with uh, four of the sons of the king to get all the young people to do something evil so they wouldn't feel like going to church you know, smoke a joint or whatever they did in those days. He said, and we would get them to do evil things and then they wouldn't want to go to church. And he was spending his life doing that until an angel finally came and appeared before Alma the Younger 
and spoke so loud with such a thunderous voice it knocked him to the ground. And the angel said to Alma the younger, if you want to go to hell, that's your prerogative. Just don't try to take the whole church with you. Now stand up, and I want to tell you a few things. And he started talking loud again. It knocked Alma down a second time. This time he didn't get up. And those who were with him thought he was dead. And you remember, they carried him to his father, and for uh, three days and nights he was in the spirit world being instructed. And when he came back out, I'll tell you, he was as humble as his father had been. He, he, had been so, he was so poor in spirit, but he said, I've been promised I yet have a chance. I am not a son of perdition. Within one year, he became president of the church when Alma the elder died. Now that's what it means to be poor in spirit, to have so offended God that you loathe yourselves, as it says in Ezekiel, and feel that you are nothing but an evil thing. And I've had friends who went through that transition. One of them is Eldridge Cleaver. And he so hated himself when he found out there was a God and that communism was false and that he'd been a, a, a terrorist. He'd committed every crime in the book except actual murder. Uh, he just, he, he got a gun to kill himself. And then he remembered that his mother used to say, Jesus forgive us. And he wondered if God might forgive him. And so he started to cry. He just knelt before God, holding on to the railing, and he, he cried. And he said, within a couple of hours, I was just soaking wet from perspiration. I finally fell on the bed in exhaustion and went to sleep. And when I woke up, I knew what I had to do. I had to go back home and pay my debt to society, voluntarily surrender myself, go back to prison and, prison and then see if I could find God. And just about a year ago, he was baptized into the church and has now been ordained an elder. And you see, they who are poor in spirit can enjoy the kingdom of God. And now that's closely related to the next one. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, some people mourn and go to liquor. Some people mourn and go to drugs. Some people mourn and go to suicide. Only those who mourn and come unto me, saith the Lord, shall be comforted. And that's true of each of us because I think all of us offend God often enough to feel a sense of mourning that we might have offended a loved one. We spoke harshly to a child, to a wife or a husband, and we feel badly about it. And the Lord says, do it my way. Ask their forgiveness and mine, and you will no longer feel badly about it. And then he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, who are the meek? In the previous chapter, the Lord says, The meek are those that are willing to be baptized. I've had a lot of friends, some of them with PhDs, one of them president of university. Oh, such great people. They loved the gospel. They even had a feeling that it might be true. The Spirit whispered to them it was true. But to be humbly baptized in the water of immersion, they were not that meek. And therefore they cannot inherit the earth, which will be the glory for the celestialized people who are of the highest degree of glory. They will not make it. And so that's what it means. Meekness means baptism not only recognizing the truthfulness of the gospel, but willing to be meek enough to go as a little child into the waters of baptism. And now, listen to this one. And they who hunger and thirst after righteousness 
shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, at the university, I used to tell my students when I was teaching the Book of Mormon and the Bible, are you really thirsty and hungry for a knowledge of the gospel? You really want to know a lot more, or are you satisfied? Most of the members of the church hit a plateau just barely above the first four principles, and they did in the days of Paul, and he got so angry with them. He said, you just lay the first four principles down continually. Now, don't abandon those, but go on unto perfection. Search for knowledge of things that otherwise you would never know. For example, the Lord commands us in the Doctrine and Covenants to search out the mysteries of the gospel that are expedient for you to understand. It's not expedient to understand where the ten tribes are. It is expedient for you to understand the atonement. Isn't that interesting? And once you get an understanding of the atonement, it will increase your faith and your determination and your resolution like I don't think anything else will. It's the most profound doctrine of the gospel. This is a mystery to most of the members of the church. They never studied it. In fact, they never even hungered to know what it really meant. They thought it was one of those things that you just take for granted on faith and walk away. No, the Lord said, hunger and thirst after righteousness and you shall be filled with light and knowledge, which is the Holy Ghost. Now listen to what it says. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. When you've had the Lord forgive you, and that spirit of forgiveness comes into you and you feel so good about it, be merciful to other people. Be very patient with other people and forgive them. And I notice a lot of fine folks who are members of the church, they are not merciful. They're extremely judgmental. And um, they're almost self-righteous about other people. I think all of us are sometimes. Be merciful, for then you will obtain mercy. And then it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now here's something that will happen to you as the Holy Ghost works in you. And this is how you can test how fast you are progressing in the beautification of your spirit. You will notice that pornography and the things that are seductive become unpleasant to you. You hear a dirty joke being told, you're not smug or self-righteous, you just don't want to hear it. It's ugly. You walk away like you do from all other ugly things. That's what it means. And only those who are pure in heart will see God. And then it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Uh, what a great thing it is to have a peacemaker in your midst. Because it is so easy to set every, dis every difference in a framework of debate. As I used to say to my students, sometimes you'll hear a professor say something you feel confident is wrong. <laughs> There's two ways to approach a professor on the subject. One is to say, you're wrong. I can quote you a scripture that says just the opposite of what you just said. Now you've got a debate. And somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. And usually it'll be the professor given the circumstances. <laughs> anyway, you, get, you immediately get contention. 
which the Lord said is, is of Satan. Notice what you can do. You can say, Professor, may I ask a question? In view of what you've just said, how would we explain the verse which says so-and-so? And that professor may have an explanation, and the person who asked the question may say, oh, oh, I see, I didn't understand that myself. Both go away winners. Or the professor may say, well now, I hadn't thought of that before. I want to think about that. Appreciate your calling that to my attention. You see what happens? There was no debate. And both sides win. Now I have a son-in-law who has learned somewhere in his life, maybe from a wonderful father and mother, not to allow contention to exist in a group. And it's typical of him to say at a time that spirits are heating up, could I ask a question? And sometimes, if it's real critical, he'll say, what if I could ask a stupid question? <laughs> when he says that, you know that it, it, he really is in a different position. But when he's all through, I notice people feel so good about it because he usually has been able to point out something that the debate at that point in time has not taken into consideration. Blessed are the peacemakers. And we have to learn how to be that in our family, in a Sunday school class, wherever we are. And now, blessed are they who are persecuted, not just for the sake of being persecuted. Some people just love to be persecuted. No, the Lord says, those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it says, blessed are ye when they shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. It better be false if it's true. <laughs> that's, not, that's no blessing. But if they say it against you falsely for the sake of the great kingdom that God is setting here upon the earth, trying to discredit you, trying to say you're controversial, you know, or trying to make you an offender for a word, then the Lord says, you will be blessed for my sake. And then finally, last of all, he says, how great shall be the joy, how exceedingly glad you will be, for great shall be your reward in heaven so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Now let me just mention something that is significant about what we've just read. These are the Beatitudes. I never knew what Beatitude meant. We used to use Beatitudes all the time. What do you think Beatitudes mean? When we were born, we were born with a set of instincts that told us to eat, that told us we wanted to possess things, uh, that gave us a desire for for nourishment, for water, and so forth. Um, gave us a desire to be attracted to the opposite sex. These are all instinctive. They're built right into us. And God put them there. Why? So we would survive. They're survival instincts. And they're all from God. Now he said, I gave those to you as a child. Now as you mature, I want you to be born again. I want you to get your spirit in charge of those instincts. And when your spirit is in charge of your body, you have been born again. And you cannot do that without being in touch with my spirit. So we want your spirit to lift itself up, associate itself with me and my spirit of inspiration in the Holy Ghost, and you will be born again. And that means 
your spirit is in charge of your body. Now, I don't know how it has been with you, but I have a big talk, a big discussion with my body frequently. I say to my body, uh-oh, there goes the alarm, time to get up. It said, I'm not getting up. I say, yeah, we got to get up. We'll miss the bus. Nope, I'm sleepy. I'm going to get up. Anyway, it's cold out there. Well, come on, let's just try it a little bit. I'll just put my toe out, see how that is. Put it out. See, it's cold. I told you it was cold. <laughs> Pull it back in. You have a big discussion. It goes on for about five minutes. Finally, you get upset and say, get up. You throw back the covers and you get up and there you go. Sometimes I say to my body, well, today we're going to fast. I'm not going to fast. <laughs> and, yeah, we're going to fast. I'll give you a migraine headache. <laughs> You'll be sorry. I don't know how you are, but I have big talks like this all the time. And this is why it says in the Book of Mormon that the natural man is an enemy to God. Well, the natural man is what God gave us. That's our instinctive body. But as we mature, it, try, it actually opposes this growth process called the beautification of the spirit. That's what Beatitudes means. That's the beautification of the spirit. That's all Jesus was talking about. And having established this, that you believe in God, you mourn for your sins, you ask forgiveness of those you've offended as well as God, you enter into the waters of baptism, you hunger and thirst after light and knowledge and receive the Holy Ghost, and then determine to endure to the end, to be merciful, to be a peacemaker, to endure persecution, and endure to the end, that's the beautification of the Spirit. That's what beatitude means. Beautification of the Spirit. Now, very quickly, let me go through the rest of the sermon. And I'm just going to hit the highlights. He said, I, I need leadership. Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light. And I don't want you to put it under a bushel. I want you to be outstanding. I want you to be an influence in the community for good. I want you to be an influence in your family. Exercise leadership. I need leadership. Now in the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, the Lord says in the pre-existence, I only had a few great leaders. And I have had to spread the human family across the earth in what have become known as empires in both number and geographical dimension according to the amount of leadership I could spare. I don't have much leadership. And in the pre-existence, I set apart my leadership people and called them Israel. In the pre-existence, you were called Israel. What does it mean? Those who overcome with God, meaning the soldiers of God. And that's why Jacob was given a new name instead of Jacob, which means the grasper, the usurper. Gave him a new name, Israel. Soldier of God. That's who you are. And in the pre-existence, that's who you were. So remember what it means to be the salt and to be the light. Now Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy any of the commandments. The substantive gospel was, that was given to Moses, I don't change any of that. I want you to think a little higher though. To Moses I said, thou shalt not kill. I don't want you to even say words that provoke people to want to kill. 
don't constantly stir up strife between people and between individuals. I told Moses, thou shalt not commit adultery. And I say to you, do not lust after another man's wife or after someone of the opposite sex to desire fornication with him. There's a great deal of difference between lust and love. Lust is very selfish. Lust is a desire to possess, to exploit for self-satisfaction. Love has a very different connotation. If you love a person, you'd like to possess them. But you want to do something for them. You want to make them happy. You want to sacrifice for them. You want to give them something. That's love. Lust is selfish. Love is outgoing. Sacrificial. That's the difference. Jesus said, I said, thou shalt not steal, for example. Well, don't covet other people's goods. And there are those who use government to try and get other people's wealth, other people's property through the channels of law. There's a violation of God's commandments. It's lusting after other people's property. To take from the have, to give to the have-nots. God said to those who have, share with the have-nots. But he said that the abominable poor are those who covet that which they have not earned or are even willing to steal that which is not theirs. Now the Lord went on and said, I want to tell you how important the family is. There'll be little inconveniences and controversies between husband and wife. Believe me, divorce which is allowed in, he, he says there's a, there are situations where divorce is permissible. But he says that is the last resort. That is the ultimate. Try to avoid it every way that you can. Keep your family together if you can. And then he goes on to say, don't constantly resist every little evil that's imposed on you. Every little imposition. Turn your other cheek and get on with life. There's some people that just revel in every, oh, they just go about all the time telling how many bad things are happening to them. They just have such a good time telling you how everybody's abusing them and beating them and taking advantage of them. And the Lord says, get on with life. Now, there is a point of evil where you do resist. You remember when the Lord sent forth his apostles and said, take neither cloak nor purse nor sword? Now, after their ministry was over, Jesus said, now, take purse, cloak, sword. And if you don't have a sword, you sell your cloak and buy a sword. You protect your lives. And in the days of Captain Moroni, the Lord said, any who will not fight to protect liberty and their wives and their children and the innocent and the weak, you dispatch them back to the spirit world for meditation. Isn't that interesting? Now, it says, pray for those who despitefully use you and your enemies. You know, I, I have some people who, who really counted them my personal enemy, particularly when we tried to teach things that um, were for their good, but politically they were opposed to that philosophy and perspective. They counted me a personal enemy because I was a spokesman for some of those principles. Now they are some of my best friends. And I'm glad we prayed for them. And I'm glad we worked with them. And I'm glad we patiently taught them rather than to just say they are of no worth, count them out, strike them out. 
pray for your enemies. But I do have, once in a while, an individual who counts himself my enemy, for whom I have to think twice before I pray. <laughs> and there be, they really try my faith. <clears throat> now, the Savior says, and go on, if you will, and try to be perfect. Now, when you try to help the poor, do it quietly. Don't do it for publicity. Do it quietly. And um, there was a, a book written many years ago called The Magnificent Obsession of a man that just loved to go around and give away. He had a lot of money, and he'd go around and give it away, and he didn't want anybody to find out who did it. That was his magnificent obsession, and how much good that person did. And then the Lord says, when you pray, notice what you're doing. Pay attention to how you pray. Don't pray to be heard of men. Don't stand up there and give an oration. Don't see how you can impress the congregation. Bow your head and cry out unto me for that which you need. And he said, I'll give you an example of a prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That beautiful, simple prayer. But notice that he asked for specific things. I notice we sometimes get in a rut. Do you ever find yourself getting in a rut? You say the blessing on the food exactly the same way. And you and, and the children both say the prayer almost in the same phraseology, etc. Get used to praying for specifics, not generalities. And then your prayer is meaningful. And then it says when you fast, don't go around and say, you know, I'm fasting for 24 hours. And you look so sad. You know, put ashes on your forehead and so forth. I'm fasting. Oh, I'm fasting. And I'm, I'm so weak, I'm fasting, you know. Anyway, there are, there are, there are people like that. <clears throat> They're so proud of their humility. And uh, the Lord says, uh, he says, when you fast, look bright and and beaming and shining and and so forth and in your heart it is I who know you are sacrificing and are uncomfortable but praying unto me and then he says treasures as it says in in the second chapter of Jacob seek riches with which to do good but the the, the love of money is the root of all evil and President Kimball has emphasized that there's great wealth among our people in America, the richest people in the world, uh, except maybe some of the Arab sheiks <laughs> who struggle well. But as a people, we're the richest people in the world. We, we all think we're poor. Isn't that amazing? I was talking to a billionaire recently, and he said, I'm having such a hard time with my money. <laughs> I said, well, I, I didn't say it out loud, but I said in my heart, you should share some of it. <laughs> share your burden. Anyway, uh, Money is a burden. Money is a burden. He says, from morning till night, I just interview people who come pleading for money, trying to decide where the best place to put it might be. But anyway, our Heavenly Father said, be generous with your wealth, whether you have little or much. And when President Kimball came back from meeting with the saints in an old, big old tin warehouse, dirt floor, filled with three or four thousand of the saints down, I think it was Mexico as I recall. He just stood up and without any script or anything, he just looked out at the members of the church and said, 
You are rich. You are rich. And then he gave a great talk on how necessary it was for us to reach down into our pockets and sacrifice a little. Not what you can spare. Give what you can't spare to those who need it much more desperately than those of us who possess it. This business of treasures is important. And then the Savior went on to say, and I'm almost finished now, he turned to the disciples, the twelve apostles, and said, Now, I don't want you to take any thought of tomorrow. Isn't that interesting? Only to the quorum of the twelve did he say that. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. As Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like these. Now, that's just to the quorum of the twelve. As a parent of eight children and 42 grandchildren, I have a responsibility to prepare in many ways for tomorrow. And the Lord expects it of me. That's part of my stewardship. But he didn't want the apostles involved in worldly things. He said, I will take care of you. You just go forward and do this great work. Then he turned back to the rest of the congregation, to the multitude. Isn't that interesting? A lot of people have wondered about that business, taking no thought of tomorrow. That does not apply to the general membership of the church. That only applies to those who are in the full service of the kingdom. And then he went on and he said, be careful how you judge other people because I have to warn you, in the last judgment, I will judge you as you have judged other people. We need to be patient with others and forgiving. Because they who are Pharisaic in their judgment are going to be judged Pharisaically, harshly, as they have judged others, the Savior says. And then he said, uh, be careful about teaching the deeper principles of the gospel to those who are wicked and unworthy. He said, it's really like casting pearls before swine. They are not ready for it. And they will turn and rend you. It won't do them any good. So why do you cast your pearls? Do not do that. Be very discriminating about how you preach the gospel and to whom and when. And then he said, I want you to ask. Ask for that which is right and I will give it to you. Now that's kind of interesting because many times I'm sure we ask for that which would not be good for us. I've done that a few times myself. And later on was very glad the Lord didn't give it to me especially at the time I asked for it. And so that's what the scripture says. Ask for that which is right, and it shall be given unto you. So I, I use, I've just learned to close my prayer by saying, Heavenly Father, if this is thy will, I seek this at thy hand at this time. And I seek the healing of this my son, or this my daughter. But be it unto thee, and we prayed and fasted over one of our daughters for a period of nearly 11 years, desperately during a period of four years. Such a beautiful girl, but we couldn't keep her. And we lost her two days after her 20th birthday. And I turned to the passage of scripture where the Lord says, pray for those who are ill. And if it is for their benefit and well-being that they be healed, I will heal them. And if they die, they die unto me. And so we consecrated her to our Heavenly Father and sent her back to Him, retaining our seven children who have been such a wonderful blessing to us. Uh, but 
That's the way we close our, our prayers. Let it be unto thee according to thy will, O God. And then the golden rule. Try to remember to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Even when you know that uh, they would do you. <laughs> as some people say, <clears throat> do unto others before they do unto you. <laughs> Which is kind of a reverse order. It's awfully hard sometimes to be as kind to other people as you'd like to be them, have them be kind to you because they're not kind to you. But that's where we show our faith and our maturity. That's where you're the salt of the earth. That's when you're the light among men. When you show the capacity to do unto others as you would hope they would do unto you even when you know they would take advantage of you. And now we come toward the conclusion Jesus said, not many of you will make it. I have to tell you that. That straight is the gate and narrow is the way and very few of you will make it. Of those of you who are members of the kingdom, I have to warn you. You are like ten virgins, all of whom were given a lamp and some oil to wait for the bridegroom. Some of you will become careless and you will wander away. And your lamp will go out because you did not keep the Spirit of the Lord with you, which is the oil in the lamp. And you offended the Spirit. And then when it's very obvious that the bridegroom is coming, you will go to the other members of the church and ask them to associate uh, with you and, and build you up again and, and make it possible for you to have the Spirit. And there won't be time. There will be too many sins to repent of. Too much to overcome. The bridegroom will come. And by the time you are ready and have repented and are prepared, when you knock at the door, he said, I will have to look at you and say, I'm sorry. I don't know you. Where were you when I wanted missionaries? Where were you when I needed tithes and offerings for the poor? Where were you when I needed good teachers? Where were you when I needed bishops and counselors and stake presidents? I'm sorry. I don't know you. And he said, I will be forced to close the door. And that's about the way he ends the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you ought to know that not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not saved by the grace of God unless you try to do all that you can. And he says it is a false doctrine by those who throw themselves on Christ with all their sins and say, he'll take care of me. I believe in Christ now. I can go out and have a good time. He said that grace isn't even available to you. That is a false doctrine. He said you must do all that you can. Then my grace and my atonement will apply to you. And he that heareth these sayings and doeth them like a man who built a house upon the rock and when the storms of life came beat against it, it stood firm because it was built upon a rock. But he that heareth these sayings and doeth them not, he like a man who built a house upon the sand and when the tides came in and the storms beat upon it, it fell. It was built upon sand. And that's the way Jesus closed his great Sermon on the Mount. Designed partially for the apostles and the rest of it for all the members of the church. And if we were able to go to President Kimball and say, what would the Lord have me do? That's what you'd hear. You'd probably get the Sermon on the Mount.
Now I want to tell all of you how much I love and appreciate you. You're very special people, all of you. Before we have our closing song, let me just say a little special prayer, both for you and for me, that we will endure, that we will be equal to the challenge in our day as the prophets and apostles and disciples of God were true to him and obedient to him in their day. That would be my prayer for us as I bear testimony to the reality of the Son of God, even Jesus Christ, who walked on these shores, performed his great miracles, and eventually gave his very life for us. And I do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And now let us turn to Wendell Noble and listen to the Sermon on the Mount just as Jesus gave it. We will begin where the Savior recites the Beatitudes and then continue through 3 Nephi chapter 12, 13, and 14. There will be no commentary except on an occasional obscure verse. Chapter 12 And it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words unto Nephi, and to those who had been called. Now the number of them who had been called and received power and authority to baptize was twelve. And behold, he stretched forth his hand unto the multitude and cried unto them, saying, Blessed are ye, if ye shall give heed unto the words of these twelve whom I have chosen from among you to minister unto you and to be your servants. And unto them... I have given power that they may baptize you with water. And after that ye are baptized with water, behold, I will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Therefore blessed are ye if ye shall believe in me and be baptized. After that ye have seen me and know that I am. And again, more blessed are they who shall believe in your words, because that ye shall testify that ye have seen me, and that ye know that I am. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe in your words, and come down into the depths of humility and be baptized. For they shall be visited with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and shall receive a remission of their sins. Yea, blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And again, blessed are all they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are all they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And blessed are all the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are all the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And blessed are all they who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute 
and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For ye shall have great joy and be exceeding glad. For great shall be your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. As we mentioned earlier, each of the Beatitudes presumes to include a phrase from the first Beatitude where Jesus said, quote, who come unto me, unquote. To get the true meaning of each beatitude, you have to include this phrase, quote, who come unto me, unquote. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you to be the salt of the earth. But if the salt shall lose its savor, wherewith shall the earth be salted? The salt shall be thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you to be the light of this people. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Behold, do men light a candle and put it under a bushel? Nay, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Therefore, let your light so shine before this people, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, One jot nor one tittle hath not passed away from the law, but in me it hath all been fulfilled. And behold, I have given you the law and the commandments of my Father, that ye shall believe in me, and that ye shall repent of your sins, and come unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Behold, ye have the commandments before you, and the law is fulfilled. The commandments of the original gospel were given unto Adam, and these have never been suspended or replaced. However, when the Israelites worshipped the golden calf in the days of Moses, we are told that the Lord added the carnal commandments. This is often referred to as the law of Moses. It was really a pattern of rituals and commandments that were added to the original gospel to help the Israelites gain the rhythm of obedience necessary to remain worthy to bring forth the Son of God in the meridian of time. As Paul told the Galatians, quote, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, unquote. And that's Galatians 3 and 24. Nevertheless, God said he despised this carnal or schoolmaster system of law. Paul says it was, quote, added, unquote, because of the sins and stubborn disobedience of the Israelites. The Lord told Isaiah that all of these tedious ceremonies and rituals were a burden to the Lord, which he hated. Now, that's the way he says it in Isaiah 1 and 14. In this 19th verse of 3 Nephi, Jesus says he has fulfilled the purpose of the carnal commandments or the law of Moses, and therefore they can now go back to the original gospel principles given to Adam 
and ignore the tedious requirements given to Moses after the incident of the golden calf. Therefore come unto me, and be ye saved. For verily I say unto you, that except ye shall keep my commandments, which I have commanded you at this time, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, and it is also written before you, that thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment of God. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of his judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if ye shall come unto me, or shall desire to come unto me, and rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, Go thy way unto thy brother, and first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come unto me with full purpose of heart, and I will receive you. Agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time he shall get thee, and thou shalt be cast into prison. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence until thou hast paid the uttermost senine. And while ye are in prison, can ye pay even one senine? Verily, verily, I say unto you, Nay. These last three verses refer to the prison or spiritual purgatory in the next life. There the wicked who refuse to accept the gospel or receive the forgiveness of sins either in the flesh or in the spirit world, are subjected to the most agonizing torture of their spirits in what is called purgatory, and they stay there until they have paid the uttermost farthing for their individual sins. Jesus says we should clear up any offenses we may have committed against a brother in this life, so we will not have to pay for it in the next life. Behold, it is written by them of old time that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. Behold, I give unto you a commandment, that ye suffer none of these things to enter into your heart. For it is better that ye should deny yourselves of these things, wherein ye will take up your cross, than that ye should be cast into hell. It hath been written, that whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whoso shall marry her who is divorced, committeth adultery. These three verses created more contention for the Savior than anything else he said in the Sermon on the Mount. These verses even troubled the apostles. Later they talked to him about it. His discussion with them will be found in Mark chapter 10, verses 10 to 12. 
It is also interesting that the Pharisees tried to trick Jesus by quoting Moses to prove that Jesus had contradicted the great prophet. The way Moses handled the Pharisees is described in Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 9. I have discussed these verses which stirred up so much commotion against Jesus in my book, quote, The Days of the Living Christ, unquote, volume 1, pages 251 to 252. And again it is written, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But verily, verily, I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. Neither shalt thou swear by the head, because thou canst not make one hair black or white. But let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever cometh of more than these is evil. And behold, it is written, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye shall not resist evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. And behold, it is written also that thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But behold, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. To literally love one's enemies when they continue to indulge in cruel, wicked acts is made more understandable in Mosiah chapter 26, verse 31. The Lord says, quote, and ye shall forgive one another your trespasses, for verily I say unto you, He that forgiveth not his neighbor's trespasses, when he says that he repents, the same hath brought himself under condemnation. Unquote. I found it much easier to pray and forgive a wicked enemy when he at least he says he's trying to repent. However, the prophet Zenos did not wait for his enemies to repent. These enemies had persecuted Zenos and cast him bodily out of their midst. Nevertheless, he prayed for them, and in due time, many of them became his friends. As for the remainder of his enemies, he continued praying for them. But since they did not repent, the Lord destroyed them. The success of Zenos in praying for his enemies is described in Alma, chapter 33, verses 4 and 10 that ye may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. Therefore those things which were of old time, which were under the law, in me are all fulfilled. Old things are done away, and all things have become new. Therefore I would that ye should be perfect, even as I, or your Father who is in heaven, 
is perfect. The Savior now continues his talk in 3 Nephi chapter 13. Verily, verily, I say that I would that ye should do alms unto the poor. But take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, when ye shall do your alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as will hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret. And thy Father who seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not do as the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father who is in secret, and thy Father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here again it is much easier to forgive trespasses when the offender at least says he is trying to repent. The Lord requires repentance by us before we are forgiven. And it will be recalled that in Mosiah 26:31, the Lord says we should forgive when an enemy or trespasser says he is trying to repent. To me, this is a very sensible, ethical, and appealing way to apply the principle of forgiveness when one who has offended is trying to repent. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head and wash thy face, 
that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father, who is in secret. And thy Father, who seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness! No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he looked upon the twelve whom he had chosen, and said unto them, Remember the words which I have spoken. For behold, ye are they whom I have chosen to minister unto this people. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat? and the body than raiment? Notice that this instruction to take no thought of the morrow is addressed to those who are called to spend all of their time and energy preaching the gospel. They are not to become involved in the routine concerns of running a business or providing for one's daily necessities. In a moment after saying this, Jesus will turn from the twelve disciples to the multitude. Notice that he doesn't tell them not to take any thought of tomorrow, because that's one of the first laws of temporal existence. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature. And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, even so will he clothe you if ye are not of little faith. Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, 
for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient is the day unto the evil thereof. The Savior now concludes his sermon on the mount as it appears in 3 Nephi chapter 14. And now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he turned again to the multitude, and did open his mouth unto them again, saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Judge not, that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge? ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Notice now that Jesus is turning from the twelve disciples to the multitude of the saints, and is giving them the general or more comprehensive instructions that apply to everybody, both the disciples and the saints. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull the mote out of thine eye? And behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you who, if his son ask bread, will give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The golden rule of doing unto others as you would have them do unto you is part of the original gospel given to Adam. It is not something that has been added in the law of Moses or carnal commandments. In the next chapter, we will talk about the law of carnal commandments, which Jesus said he had fulfilled. The whole purpose of it was completed with the coming of Christ. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leadeth to destruction, and many there be who go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. 
Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore whoso heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This completes the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus delivered it to the Nephites. It clearly indicates which part of this sermon was addressed to the twelve disciples and which was addressed to all of the saints, including the disciples. 3 Nephi chapter 15 In this chapter, Jesus refers to two of God's great secrets which are not found in any other scripture. First, however, he wants to explain something he had mentioned earlier which was very disturbing to some of the people. And now it came to pass that when Jesus had ended these sayings, he cast his eyes round about on the multitude and said unto them, Behold, Ye have heard the things which I taught before I ascended to my Father. Therefore, whoso remembereth these sayings of mine and doeth them, him will I raise up at the last day. And it came to pass that when Jesus had said these words, he perceived that there were some among them who marveled and wondered what he would concerning the law of Moses. For they understood not the saying that, Old things had passed away, and that all things had become new. The things which Jesus had said, which some of the Nephites found disturbing, are in chapter 12, verse 46 to 48. He states, quote, These things were of old times, which were under the law. In me are all fulfilled. These old things are done away, and all things have become new. Therefore I would that ye should be perfect, even as I, or your Father who is in heaven, is perfect. Unquote. And he said unto them, Marvel not that I said unto you that old things had passed away, and that all things had become new. 
Behold, I say unto you that the law is fulfilled that was given unto Moses. Behold, I am he that gave the law, and I am he who covenanted with my people Israel. Therefore the law in me is fulfilled. For I have come to fulfill the law, therefore it hath an end. So they did hear him correctly. Their beloved law of Moses, or the schoolmaster law designed to bring them unto Christ, was to be abandoned. It was to be abolished because it had all been fulfilled. Behold, I do not destroy the prophets, for as many as have not been fulfilled in me, verily I say unto you, shall all be fulfilled. And because I said unto you that all things have passed away, I do not destroy that which hath been spoken concerning things which are to come. For behold, the covenant which I have made with my people is not all fulfilled, but the law which was given unto Moses hath an end in me. This was a hard doctrine, even as Peter over in Jerusalem was already discovering. This meant that to be a Christian under the new covenant, male converts need not be circumcised. This was shocking. Circumcision had been the token of the old covenant since the days of Abraham, and there would be no more blood sacrifices. These Nephites would soon learn, as the disciples in Jerusalem had learned, that the Sabbath would no longer be on Saturday, the seventh day, but on Sunday, the first day of the week, which memorializes the Savior's resurrection. And that was not all. There was nearly 2,000 years of ritual and tradition which was to be set aside and replaced by a whole new Christian religion lifestyle. To gain some idea of the monumental implications of this shattering of past tradition, consider the following which would now be abolished. Number one, the daily burnt offering. Number two, the sin offering. Number three, the trespass offering. Number four, the meal offering. Number five, the meat offering. Number six, the wave offering. Number seven, the drink offering. Number eight, all the complicated dietary laws. Number nine, all the laws of purification. Number 10, the annual day of atonement. Number 11, the feast of the Passover. Number 12, the feast of tabernacles. Number 13, the feast of Pentecost. Number 14, the feast of unleavened bread. Number 15, the feast of the ingathering. Number 16, the feast of weeks. Number 17, the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights. And number 18, Sacrifices to the New Moon. Only a faithful disciple practicing the law of Moses would appreciate what the new law of the covenant was going to do to so many of the things they had previously considered sacred and unchangeable. One can well imagine what a challenging assignment it was to be a missionary among the Jews in those days and now among the Nephites. Behold, I am the law and the light. Look unto me and endure to the end, and ye shall live. For unto him that endureth to the end will I give eternal life. Behold, 
I have given unto you the commandments, therefore keep my commandments. And this is the law and the prophets, for they truly testified of me. In fact, the structure of the law of Moses or the schoolmaster law was designed to point to the coming of Christ and his atoning sacrifice. And now that had happened. And now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he said unto those twelve whom he had chosen, Ye are my disciples, and ye are a light unto this people, who are a remnant of the house of Joseph. And behold, this is the land of your inheritance, and the Father hath given it unto you. Jesus now turned to his newly appointed twelve disciples to emphasize the great blessing they enjoyed to have their inheritance in the promised land. Then Jesus began to share with the twelve disciples the two great secrets he wanted them to know. And not at any time hath the Father given me commandment, that I should tell it unto your brethren at Jerusalem. Neither at any time hath the Father given me commandment, that I should tell unto them concerning the other tribes of the house of Israel, whom the Father hath led away out of the land. Of course, the big question was, why didn't the Jews know about the Nephites and the fact that the same gospel the Jews had received was going to be shared with the saints in America? Even if they didn't know about the ten tribes, it certainly seemed they should have known about the Nephites who had come from Jerusalem. This much did the Father command me, that I should tell unto them that other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And now because of stiff-neckedness and unbelief, they understood not my word. Therefore I was commanded to say no more of the Father concerning this thing unto them. It is very apparent that Jesus had been very anxious to tell his disciples in Jerusalem about the Nephites. And he calls their lack of curiosity and ignoring the broad hint he had given them as a form of iniquity. Furthermore, the Jews did not learn anything about the lost ten tribes. Jesus said this was also because of their lack of interest, their lack of curiosity. And Jesus also designates this indifference as an iniquity. But verily I say unto you, that the Father hath commanded me, and I tell it unto you, that ye were separated from among them because of their iniquity. Therefore it is because of their iniquity that they know not of you. And verily I say unto you again, that the other tribes hath the Father separated from them, and it is because of their iniquity that they know not of them. Nevertheless, Jesus wanted to set the record straight. Jesus said it was the Nephites and the lost ten tribes he was thinking about when he spoke of his, quote, other sheep, unquote, who would hear his voice and be numbered among those whom the Father had given him. And verily I say unto you that ye are they of whom I said, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. 
and they understood me not, for they supposed it had been the Gentiles. For they understood not that the Gentiles should be converted through their preaching. Apparently the disciples in Jerusalem had pondered the Savior's strange reference to his, quote, other sheep, unquote, but they had decided he must be talking about the Gentiles. Jesus said this was a mistake because he would not show himself unto the Gentiles, nor would they hear his voice, but he would send his apostles to preach to them and only manifest himself to them through the confirmation of the Spirit of the Holy Ghost. And they understood me not that I said, They shall hear my voice. And they understood me not that the Gentiles should not at any time hear my voice, that I should not manifest myself unto them, save it were by the Holy Ghost. But behold, ye have both heard my voice and seen me, and ye are my sheep, and ye are numbered among those whom the Father hath given me. Third Nephi, chapter 16. The Savior brought up the subject of the lost ten tribes in the last chapter, and then refers to them briefly in this one. He says, And verily, verily, I say unto you that I have other sheep which are not of this land, neither of the land of Jerusalem, neither in any parts of that land round about whither I have been to minister, for they of whom I speak are they who have not as yet heard my voice. Neither have I at any time manifested myself unto them. But I have received a commandment of the Father, that I shall go unto them, and that they shall hear my voice, and shall be numbered among my sheep, that there may be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore I go to show myself unto them. It is interesting that the Savior had never visited the lost tribes, nor had they heard his voice. He also hints that they are established in some distant land. In the next chapter, Brigham Young will give us some indication of where they are located. It is interesting that Jesus commanded the Nephites to write down what he had told them about the Savior's other sheep just in case the disciples in Jerusalem never got around to seeking a revelation concerning them. And I command you that ye shall write these sayings after I am gone, that if it so be that my people at Jerusalem, they who have seen me and been with me in my ministry, do not ask the Father in my name, that they may receive a knowledge of you by the Holy Ghost, and also of the other tribes whom they know not of, that these sayings which ye shall write shall be kept and shall be manifested unto the Gentiles, that through the fullness of the Gentiles, the remnant of their seed, who shall be scattered forth upon the face of the earth because of their unbelief, may be brought in, or may be brought to a knowledge of me, their Redeemer, Dr. Hugh Nibley of the Brigham Young University discovered a passage in the writings of an early Christian named Origen, who indicated that the Christian Greeks knew about a people called the Anichthonians. 
This name means the people living on the other side of the earth. Origen said the Anicthonians could not be reached because of the width of the ocean, but they had the same gospel ordinances as those which Jesus had given to the Jews. This suggests that the Jewish apostles had eventually gotten around to asking for a revelation about the Savior's other sheep. At least they seem to have known that Christianity had reached the people on the other side of the earth. This comment by Origen is mentioned by Dr. Nibley in his book, quote, The Introduction of the Book of Mormon, unquote, on page 285. And then will I gather them in from the four quarters of the earth, and then will I fulfill the covenant which the Father hath made unto all the people of the house of Israel. And blessed are the Gentiles because of their belief in me, in and of the Holy Ghost, which witnesses unto them of me and of the Father. Jesus then speaks of the latter days when he will commence the great gathering of Israel. He says there will also be many Gentiles who believe in the gospel, and they will also be included in the great gathering. Behold, because of their belief in me, saith the Father, and because of the unbelief of you, O house of Israel, in the latter day shall the truth come unto the Gentiles, that the fullness of these things shall be made known unto them. In fact, because the Lamanites will have passed through centuries of apostasy and darkness, the Gentiles will be better prepared to receive the restored gospel than the Lamanites. Therefore, the restoration of the gospel in the latter days will be first to the Gentiles and then to the seed of Jacob or the Lamanites. But woe, saith the Father, unto the unbelieving of the Gentiles, for notwithstanding they have come forth upon the face of this land and have scattered my people who are of the house of Israel. And my people who are of the house of Israel have been cast out from among them and have been trodden under feet by them. Nevertheless, Jesus anticipated that in the beginning many of the Gentiles would not believe and they would persecute the Lamanites and not only cast them out with contempt but trod them underfoot. And because of the mercies of the Father unto the Gentiles, and also the judgments of the Father upon my people who are of the house of Israel, verily, verily I say unto you, that after all this, and I have caused my people who are of the house of Israel to be smitten, and to be afflicted, and to be slain, and to be cast out from among them, and to become hated by them, and to become a hiss and a byword among them. Jesus said that if the Gentiles rebel after all God has done for them, and they sin against the gospel because of their pride and prosperity, then Jesus said the Father would withdraw his blessings from them. In this next verse, the Lord itemizes the sins of the Gentiles, which will cause them to lose their blessings unless they repent. Notice that this verse begins as though the Gentiles will actually commit all of these sins. And in chapter 21, Jesus describes the desolating destruction that will take place in America if the sinful abominations of the Gentiles are allowed to run their course. And thus commandeth the Father that I should say unto you, 
at that day when the Gentiles shall sin against my gospel and shall be lifted up in the pride of their hearts above all nations and above all the people of the whole earth and shall be filled with all manner of lyings and of deceits and of mischiefs and all manner of hypocrisy and murders and priestcrafts and whoredoms and of secret abominations. And if they shall do all those things and shall reject the fullness of my gospel, behold, saith the Father, I will bring the fullness of my gospel from among them. The Father will not only withdraw the gospel from among the Gentiles, but he will begin to shower his richest blessings on the descendants of the Lamanites. And then will I remember my covenant which I have made unto my people, O house of Israel, and I will bring my gospel unto them. The Lamanites and those who have mixed their blood with that of the Gentiles will begin to join the church of Jesus Christ in great numbers. And the Lamanites and those of mixed blood will begin to flourish as never before. And I will show unto thee, O house of Israel, that the Gentiles shall not have power over you, but I will remember my covenant unto you, O house of Israel. And ye shall come unto the knowledge of the fullness of my gospel. The rich and powerful Gentiles will begin to see that the fullness of the gospel is causing the lowly Lamanites and those of mixed Lamanite blood to become a strong and influential people. This prophecy is now in the process of being fulfilled, and not only the Lamanites, but particularly those of mixed blood, are coming into the church by the tens of thousands. These people are primarily the inhabitants of Mexico and the other Latin American countries, where new stakes and temples of the church are multiplying at an astonishing new rate. Now, as Jesus addresses the people whose posterity will fulfill this prophecy, he had another prophecy in his mind. It is a prophecy which we will talk about in chapter 20 and 21. It is a prophecy which we find among the writings of an Old Testament prophet named Micah. Jesus apparently never identified this prophet while talking to the Nephites, but his words could have easily been located in the plates of brass. Micah proclaimed that if the wicked Gentiles, whom Jesus identifies as those inhabiting modern America, did not repent, the flourishing seed of Jacob or the Lamanite nations would rise up in their righteous strength and completely cleanse America of the wicked Gentiles. Of course, as we move into the millennial year of 2000 AD, such a shift of political power may seem virtually impossible. But studies show that certain circumstances could bring about some tremendous changes. However, be that as it may, the Lord wants to save the Gentiles, not destroy them. In spite of the wickedness among some of the Gentile leaders and at different levels of Gentile society, as a people they have accomplished marvelous things in the modern world. To be preserved, the Gentiles simply need to repent and make the fullness of the gospel a leading force throughout the land. This is why the missionaries are being sent out by the tens of thousands among the American Gentiles as well as the seed of Jacob in the Latin American countries. 
And while a shocking amount of wickedness prevails for the moment at many levels of the American culture, new stakes and temples are sprouting up as never before. In fact, the church has had to construct the largest building for religious worship in the United States in order to accommodate the semi-annual conferences of its church leaders, which are brought together from all over the world. At this point, Jesus describes what would happen if the American Gentiles participated in a vast tidal wave of conversion and united with the seed of Jacob to prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. Here is how Jesus said the Gentiles could become part of the house of Israel and be numbered among God's people. But if the Gentiles will repent and return unto me, saith the Father, behold, they shall be numbered among my people, O house of Israel. Of course, if that happened, the shocking prophecy of Micah would not have to be fulfilled. Jesus referred to this hopeful possibility and said, And I will not suffer my people, who are of the house of Israel, to go through among them and tread them down, saith the Father. But if the wicked Gentiles do not repent and generally refuse to embrace the gospel, the prophecy of Micah will be literally fulfilled. In the next verse, Jesus now gives the general framework of this prophecy, which Micah uttered at least a thousand years earlier. Jesus said, But if they will not turn unto me and hearken unto my voice, I will suffer them. Yea, I will suffer my people, O house of Israel, that they shall go through among them and shall tread them down. And they shall be as salt that hath lost its savor, which is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of my people, O house of Israel. Jesus will quote the full content of this prophecy in chapter 20, verse 16 and 17, and in even greater detail in chapter 21, verses 12 to 15. Even though Jesus does not identify the prophet he is quoting, it is actually taken from the writings of Micah in the Old Testament, chapter 5, verses 7 to 15. In any event, Jesus wanted the Gentiles to know that this western hemisphere has been promised to the seed of Joseph as their inheritance, and the Gentiles would receive a legacy in this land only as they joined with the house of Israel and sustained the seed of Joseph. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Thus hath the Father commanded me, that I should give unto this people this land for their inheritance. And then the words of the prophet Isaiah shall be fulfilled, which say, Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. These blessings will not only be showered upon the American Zion, but also upon ancient Jerusalem. The Lord said, Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eye of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. 
It will be a day when the whole world will recognize that the power of God is being manifest on behalf of his people wherever they are. If you liked this podcast and would like more materials by W. Cleon Skousen, you can find his other books and recordings at skousenlibrary.com or at your local LDS bookstore.